Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. And she looked at me and thought, it's probably a sweet but nerdy foreign student guy. And as we got to know one another, I found out she was really a farm girl from Iowa. And she found out that I was really a sweet, nerdy foreign student guy. <laughs> and, uh, but I wanted to show you a picture of our family. So we have four kids. Uh, I'll, I'll, there we go. So this is from, a, this is from 2019. So that's Holly. Um, yeah, it's great. There's Sophia on the far right there. Nora is our second, and then Jonas, and then Jane. So that's our family. Now we feel like we know each other a little bit. If we had more time, I'd have you show family pictures too. Now, having, you know, having a full house made the whole quarantine season and all of that stuff in, in, you know, a year ago uh, you know, really exciting at times. We played lots of board games and we, we, we did different shows together. Uh, but our kids are really into musicals. And so we always had music going on in the, ha- in the home. And of course, that last summer when Hamilton was streaming, you know, we were watching that. The soundtrack was playing. Our younger kids were playing uh, Disney songs. And so we're doing the dishes and we're singing along. And it turns out that music was a really great way to cope with uh, difficult situations or when you found yourself alone. And maybe some of you, you know, living alone, it was particularly painful and, and difficult. And maybe you did join in with some of these online sing-along things. And I don't know if you saw some of the viral videos that came out of uh, that time. I remember early on last uh, spring, April, May, when Italy was being hit really hard, there was this viral video that went out of Italians on their balcony. Do you remember this? And they're, they're getting out on their balcony and they're singing like, uh, to me it sounded like opera. It's probably like an Italian folk song, but in Italy that is the opera, you know. But they're all just joining in and they're singing and it's like super moving. You're like, wow, this is incredible and then uh, some friends of mine from the UK shared like uh, someone in, in England had tried to do the same thing and on their back garden, you know, started a rousing sort of pub song and somebody else yells, keep it down, mate, you know. They, they weren't as keen on the uh, public singing as uh, the Italians were. Well, as it turns out, science agrees with our instincts. Singing actually makes us feel better. Several years ago, researchers discovered that when Uh, a group of people sing together, their oxytocin levels rise. Oxytocin is this chemical in your brain that uh, produces kind of the feeling of love, of calmness, of trust, of well-being, of a motivation to interact socially. It makes your stress levels go down. And so it makes sense that in long stretches of social disconnection, that singing, even if it was singing with a group of people online, somehow helped you feel better about it. But as Christians, we know there's more to this. It's not just music and chemistry. It's not just singing and science. There's something deeper to it. It's not just the act of singing, but the one we're singing to. Not just the act of singing, but the God that we're singing to. And so you look even in the Old Testament, the people of God, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they had a whole song book. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs and prayers that they would sing together. And if we're tempted to think, well, you know, you know maybe they just had life that was always so good and they were just singing as they tiptoed through the tulips. No, no, no. If you're vaguely familiar with Israel's story in the Old Testament, this was a tiny 
nation that was always getting kicked around by the bullies of Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. This was a fledgling group of people that were trying to hang on to a promise about a land. And so these were songs they sang in the wilderness. These were songs that they sang when they were being oppressed by enemies. These were songs that they sang when they were on their way to exile. There's even one of the Psalms that says, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And yet that lyric is a lyric in a song. They're singing through all these different seasons and early Christians carried on this tradition. We know from the book of Acts that Christians began singing and Paul and Silas find themselves in, 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 a, in prison and they sing at midnight. They start singing hymns and songs of praise to the Lord and you're like, boy, what is with these people and the singing? Uh, in fact, around the year 110, a Roman governor named Pliny is writing to the emperor who happens to be his uncle and he's trying to figure out what, what do we do with these Christians? Should we actively hunt them down and try to arrest them? And, and he, he can, comes to this conclusion that maybe they should put them through some sort of test of allegiance. But one of the things that Pliny says in description of these early Christians, he's, he's like, you know, he talks about their moral life and how they're a little bit different in, in the way they handle marriage and uh, babies and this sort of stuff. And then he says, he says, and these people get up early on a Sunday morning before the sunrise and sing hymns to Christ as if to a God. That's one of his descriptions about Christians, that they're singing these songs to Jesus as if he were a God. You're in this series here at Christ Community about rhythms of the soul, rhythms of the heart, rhythms that help us become transformed, help us resist the confirmation of culture, the culture trying to conform us and pressure us, and we're being invited into a different rhythm that can actually transform us, that can move us beyond boredom and busyness and take us into a different way. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Clayton gave the analogy of trying to dance the waltz to a salsa beat. You can't quite do the waltz to a salsa beat. And you have to invite, you have to start a different rhythm. You've got to listen to a different kind of music. Today, we're going to talk about the rhythm of worship. The rhythm of worshiping together. Now, I know here we are, you know, almost a year and a half after the beginning of the pandemic and all of that. And, and it's great to see many of you in the room and some of you out of necessity have to keep watching online. And I get that. But there's also a sense in which it's, it's possible that after a year or so of, of, of staying home, that we've maybe developed some bad habits. And we've kind of thought, yeah, you know, this is good. This is, I kind of like this. I can be my PJs, church on demand, you know. I can like even binge watch if I want to. I can skip a few weeks and, like, you know, catch up. But I, I hope this morning that as we talk about the practice or the rhythm of worshiping together, that something will shake in you, that you'll say, wait a minute, maybe this is more than just a private individual consumer thing where I just kind of get, maybe there's something special about being with the church, and we heard it in that video just a few moments ago. Maybe there's something about worshiping with the church together that is part of that rhythm that transforms us. And so I wanna say three things to us this morning, three things about how worship forms us, and the first is this, worship forms our memory. Worship actually forms our memory. Now, I'm not just 
thinking of the power of song. You know, some of you can think of songs you learned in school that help you mem- helped you memorize facts or you know, notable things of history. That certainly is true. And it's the reason why uh, you think of the Wesley brothers. We, we may not be able to quote a John Wesley sermon, but you no doubt know a Charles Wesley hymn. Or maybe you think of that old saying from the Scottish politician in the 1600s where he said, give me the one who writes the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. There's something about a song that helps us remember differently, but worship does more than that. It's not just pure memory function. Worship actually helps us recall God's faithfulness in the past. It it forms our memory to remember the faithfulness of God. Look at Psalm 52. This is just one example of this. Psalm 52, verse nine, the psalmist says, for what you have done, I will always praise you. In the presence of your faithful people and I will hope in your name for your name is good. Now, I'll leave that up there for a few moments. I want to unpack a couple of phrases. For what you have done. Now, sometimes, you know, if you've been in church for a little while, you've been a Christian for a little while, you kind of get this idea, this vague notion that we should worship God for who he is and not what he has done. And that almost sounds more noble, more virtuous. Oh, I, I just worship God for who he is. I would like to suggest to you that actually the Bible does not make a hard distinction between who God is and what he does. That actually the Bible says we know who God is by looking at what he has done. That his actions actually reveal his attributes. So the Bible doesn't come to us like an encyclopedia. If you you know, sat down to read through the Bible and the four-year program that you guys do here at Christ Community. You, you, it doesn't open up and, you know, A, he is awesome. Yeah. B, he is beautiful. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't work like that. It tells us these stories of the people of God journeying with God, or rather God entering into our world and journeying with us. And we discover who God is and what he is like by looking at his actions. So if you're in worship and you're thinking, well, how does worship form our memory? It's it's when we begin to recall what God has done in the past. And then the psalmist says, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. This is the thing about gathering with the churches. Sometimes you gather together and you're you're maybe going through a a particularly difficult time and you come in the church anyway and you look up and you say, oh, there's so-and-so. I remember a year ago, they were going through this thing with their business or with their family or with their marriage. And, and, and look, look at what the Lord has done. And it's the testimony of God's work in someone else's life that brings you strength just by seeing them. This happened to me last fall. I was walking with a couple through a difficult moment in their marriage, and they'd gone through a, a short a period of separation. And I was meeting with the husband and and they, he was telling me some of the counseling and some of the work that they were, they were doing. And then all of a sudden, and up until that point, I'd seen them in church individually at different services. And then all of a sudden, one Sunday, I looked over across the room, and there they were together, husband and wife and the kids. And I just, I thought, whoa, 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 I didn't, I didn't what's going on? And I just looked, at, we caught eyes, and I, and I did this. And he goes, <laughs> and, and she looked over and, and I just, you know, I went like this to them and after the service made a beeline and we had lunch that week and heard all about what was happening and the repair and reconciliation and restoration. But those are the moments in worship where you say, I'm remembering God's faithfulness. 
I'm, I'm, I'm looking at God at work. Our church, uh, New Life Church, we've been through a number of difficult seasons and in 2006, the founding senior pastor had a pretty public moral failure and was removed and new senior pastor came in in August of 2007, Pastor Brady Boyd, and 100 days into his time, a gunman came on our campus and opened fire in the parking lot, took the lives of two teenage girls, began walking down the hall and was about to do more damage, was thankfully stopped, apprehended by an off-duty security guard. And the whole scene was a tragic thing. It was a tragic, dark day in our church. To experience that after we were already reeling from the pain of betrayal and scandal. And I remember, I was on the worship team in those years, and I, I, this was in 2007, and I remember Pastor Brady saying, we need to get together as a church and worship. And there's gonna be a time to do funerals and to weep and to lament, but we just need to turn to the Lord in worship. We gathered on a Wednesday night a few days after this had happened, and we thought, is anybody even going to come back to the campus? Well, people packed out the place, standing room only, thousands of people, and I, I was on the platform with the worship team, and we began to sing a song that my buddy, the worship pastor at New Life, John Egan, uh, had written called Overcome. And the chorus is, you know, Jesus, worthy of all honor and glory, worthy of all our praise, you overcame, Savior. And we're exalting the name of Jesus. And then the bridge of that song is taken from Revelation 12, 11. It says, and we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Everyone overcome. And we're hands up, tears streaming down our faces, belting out these words, looking around the room. And in that moment... In our auditorium, in our sanctuary, we have flags from the nations of the world all around hanging from the rafters. And I'm thinking in that moment, wait a minute. The church has been through times like this before. In fact, the church has been through much darker times like this than this. And thinking about how the same Jesus, the same Spirit of God that sustained the early church through persecution and that's sustaining the churches in different regions of the world through every dark experience that they're walking through and all of a sudden recognizing this is how we will overcome. See, worship is forming our memory. And in those moments you're saying the same God who walked with the church and helped them overcome is the same God that is walking with us today. When we worship together, we remember God's faithfulness. When we worship together, we're calling to mind God's faithfulness. That's how it forms our memory. And secondly, worship forms our expectation. Worship forms our expectation. Acts 4, this is one of the early prayer meetings for the early church. Acts 4, verse 30 and 31. They're praying and they say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is the early church saying, we know that the mission of Jesus is going to continue through the church and it's gonna continue by the same spirit that works through Jesus. In verse 31, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. I want you to notice two things about this story. The first is that they experienced the power of God, and the second is that they were empowered by the power of God. They went and spoke boldly. A few years ago, I was doing my doctoral research on hope and worship, and 
And part of that research was, was constructing different models of hope. How do we think about hope? What is hope? And from a sort of secular cognitive psychology perspective, hope is the mixture of agency and pathway, meaning it's that intersection or combination of willpower, I can do this, and way power, or I, I, my, my path is unimpeded, it's, it's not blocked, I can do this. And from a human perspective, when you think about communities that wrestle with despair, usually it's because one or both of those things are missing. If, if a particular person feels like, I don't have the power to do this, I don't know how to break this cycle of addiction or poverty, then agency is gone, the sense of willpower. Or you say, well, I want to, but every time I try, the path is blocked. There's something working against me. But in a Christian perspective, when we think about worship, you know what's happening when we worship? I think what's happening when we worship is we say, like we were confessing earlier today, I, I don't have the power. <laughs> I can't do this, God. What a freeing thing to say. You come to church and you say, I, I don't have it. <laughs> but, but you know what comes next is you're saying, but God, you do. But God, you're great. But God, you're holy. But God, you're stronger. But God, you're the one who makes a way where there is no way. You're the one that not only has the agency, but you've got the pathway. And so what happens, what I discovered is people experience hope in worship because they're encountering something about God's power and they're transferring their hope upwards to God. When we worship together, we actually encounter God's powerful and empowering presence. When we worship together as the people of God, something begins to rise in us and we begin to say, God, you are able, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God's powerful and empowering presence. Now, you know that verse in Philippians 4, I can do all things. He's not talking about, oh, I, can, I just got no limits, I can just keep going, I can do, you know. He's talking about the ability to endure good times and difficult moments, the ability to stand and last. Late last summer, I began to develop a kind of a raspy voice. At first, I thought it was kind of cool. It's like, all right, you know. And I thought, maybe it's just speaking too much, summer allergies, you know, who knows, There's too many Zoom calls, you know, we all yell on Zoom calls, you know. <laughs> and uh, finally, a friend was like, I you probably, Go get that checked out. So I went and saw a local ENT, and he said, there's some significant bleeding, and I don't want to gross you out this morning, but he's like, you actually have a little polyp on the side of it. And I thought, well, I'll just, you know, some vocal rest. And so I did some long stretches of silence, like a week of total silence. Me and my wife loved it. You know, it was great. <laughs> my kids loved it, too, because I, I couldn't, I was like trying to snap at them, and they're like, yeah, dad, you know. <laughs> And finally went to see a specialist uh, up uh, in Denver and he said, this is, you're gonna need surgery, this is, this is a big deal. And I was trying to avoid that and I didn't wanna do that and it, there's, a, there's a couple procedures that needed to happen, one to remove the polyp and the other to deal with the blood vessel that was bleeding in the vocal cord and it, it was a, it's a delicate thing that can go terribly wrong. And I remember coming to one of our services and I, I wasn't able to preach. I was out of the pulpit for 12 weeks. 
But I would occasionally just keep coming, and I would come, uh, I came to one of the services, and I was standing in there, and everyone's singing, and they're singing that great song that Andrew Peterson wrote, Is He Worthy? And I'm standing there feeling like, God, I want to sing. I want to worship with the people of God. And in that moment, I'm just silently in my heart, in my head, praying, God, would you please act on my behalf? Would you help? through medicine, through, through, just act. Show your power and empower me to go through this season. And I felt overwhelmingly through all of it, the Holy Spirit just saying in my heart, I'm with you, I'm with you. It wasn't, I was hoping for sort of this instantaneous healing, but he decided to do the process healing thing. But I knew that he was with me. And through a, a longer story, a connection, was able to find a world-class surgeon out in Boston who took our insurance. I mean, that is a miracle, right? <laughs> and uh, the surgery was successful and everything, I'm fine, I pr praise God, thanks be to God, everything is working well and 100% and, uh, and I feel great and I'm so grateful. In those moments, that's when you say, when I worship, I'm encountering God's powerful and empowering presence. I, it's forming an expectation in me. that God is here, God is with me, God is able. God is empowering me. The third and final way that worship forms us as we worship together is that worship forms our hope. Now this might sound like the second point. Like, well, you said expectation, isn't it? Hope. Expectation is, is a sense of, Lord, I'm anticipating, come on and act. But hope is different than that. Hope for the Christian is confident assurance. Hope for the Christian is, I know that the end of the story is going to be good. How do I know? Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I know that death won't have the last word. I know that evil won't triumph. I know that in the end all things will be made new. Christian hope is confident assurance. It's more than an expectation. It's more than a wish. And every time we worship together as a church, we're formed in hope. This is how the early Christians were able to face the threat of death, the intimidation of the empire and say, we know. The book of Revelation is a book that is confusing in many ways, but it's also a book that was written to encourage seven churches, seven congregations. It was written to encourage churches experiencing persecution during Nero's time and Domitian's time. And, and isn't it interesting that the book of Revelation, other than the book of Psalms, is the other book in the Bible that has the most amount of worship songs in it. It's our clue. It's our clue that when you're facing adversity and the onslaught of evil and opposition in those moments, worship the Lamb of God and it will form your hope about the end of all things. It will form your hope about resurrection and about new creation. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but each in, his, in its turn, he's talking about the end of it all. He says, Christ, the first fruits when he comes and those who belong to him and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then verse 28, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. Now look at this last phrase, so that God may be all in all. 
It's this image of God filling everything. And in fact, that is the description at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 says, the city of God has come to dwell. God has made his dwelling place with humankind. And his dwelling place with us is what transforms earth and heaven into a new creation. God intends to dwell with us. And then Paul follows up 1 Corinthians with another letter, 2 Corinthians, to the same church. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, but while we are in this tent, this fragile physical body, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He wants that day to come. Then he says, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, the one who made us to be carriers and containers of the very life of God, is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now we know how deposits work. You put a down payment on a house and you say, we got it, no other bidders got it, we're moving in, this is ours. What does it mean when God puts a deposit on you? And God says, I'm putting a down payment, I'm putting a guarantee, I'm putting a deposit in you. I'm moving in. It's coming at the end of all time. But, but for now, here's the deposit. And every time Paul talks like this, there's an individual level of this, but he's thinking about the church. And he's writing to this church in Corinth, and he's saying, look, guys, it seems like a mess right now. And they were a mess. But God has put a deposit down. The Holy Spirit dwells with you when you gather together as a church, and it's coming one day. The Holy Spirit is that very deposit. It's Paul's way of saying that when we worship together, we actually foretaste the future. When we worship together, we're actually foretasting the future because we gather together as a church, we worship, and you're like, oh, what was that thing I was feeling? I don't know, maybe it's the Holy Spirit helping us experience in advance that one great day when saints, the redeemed, will worship from every tribe and tongue, every nation and land, every generation, all together crying, worthy is the Lamb. Can you imagine how glorious that day will be? That's what we're tasting. Uh, growing up in Malaysia, um, uh, you know, it's a land of wonderful, uh, it's a mix of different Southeast Asian cultures and also a mix of wonderful different foods. And my mom is a great cook. My parents now live in Colorado Springs um, and near us. They've, they, they, they became citizens a couple years ago and they, they you know, uh, have been there for a while. And, but I have these fond memories of growing up in Malaysia where I would come home from school and my sister would be, you know, doing some other activity or whatever. And I was, I was the one that would often help my mom in the kitchen. And so she would say, okay, Glenn, so here's what you need to do. You need to prep the spices, and everything's fresh, you know? So there's cloves and cardamoms and garlic, and it's either slicing stuff where there's this mortar and pestle, like the stone bowl and a grinder thing, and she would give me these fresh spices to ground, grind up and prepare it. And, and the, the plus, I learned, that the pro of helping in the kitchen is that you get to taste dinner ahead of time. <laughs> she said, well, why don't, you, why don't you try a bit of this? And what do you think of this stew or this curry or this, you know? I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And we'd sit down at dinner later as a family, I'd be like, oh, this is gonna be good tonight. And they're like, how do you know? I'm like, well, I was in the kitchen. 
I think that's a little bit like what happens for us as the church. We say to the world, there's a better day coming. We look at a world that's discouraged and depressed and confused and in darkness, and you say to them, there is a God who will make all things new. There is a God who even now is holding all things together. And they're like, how do you know? Well, you create, well, how, why would you, you Christians? And you're like, no, 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 I, I've had a taste. I've been in God's kitchen, AKA the church. I've been in God's kitchen. I've had a foretaste of this future that he's bringing. It's good. It's coming. So friends, when we worship together, it's forming our memory of God's faithfulness. It's forming our expectation of God acting in our lives. And it's forming our hope of what is to come. The early Christians would put all of this together in one type phrase that they called the mystery of faith. And they said, Christ has died. That's our memory, we look backwards. Christ is risen, that's our expectation, the living Christ. And Christ will come again, that's our hope, that all things will be made new. Today as we're in this series about worshiping together and what it means to worship together as the people of God, my hope is that for some of you you'd say, you know what, I really do, I need to return to the gathering of the people of God, there's something about it. Others of you, maybe you, the, the, the Lord is kind of tugging your heart and you're like, I, honestly, like when they sing and they do stuff, like I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I, is this like Christian karaoke but there's no yellow bouncing ball? Like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> and maybe, maybe today is a day to take a step beyond your comfort. You say, well, Glenn, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not like the hands raising or, it's just, I don't, I'm, I'm just, you know, I play it cool, you know, like I'm, I know, listen, my, my in-laws are Midwestern, you know, German Lutherans, it's like, you ever heard the story of the German Lutheran farmer who loved his wife so much he almost told her, you know, like, <laughs> like, I get it, I get it, you know, <laughs> but what, <laughs> but what if, what if today was a moment you said, I don't know, maybe I'll take a risk. Maybe I will let my posture lead my heart. In this series, you've been talking about practices that form your heart. But a part of a practice sometimes is a posture. And you're like, well, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, is, I've never done this before. Maybe today's the day to say, this is a posture that forms my heart to say, God, I'm in awe of you. Or this is a posture that forms my heart to say, God, I surrender to you. Or maybe kneeling, this is a posture that forms my heart to say, God, I'm so thankful for your grace. And maybe clapping is a posture, an act, a physical act that is a way for your body to get ahead of your heart that says, I'm grateful that this is not the end because this isn't great right now. Whatever small way it might be, not just today, but in the days and weeks ahead, and even beyond the gathering together as a church, even at home when you're listening to music, a way of saying, I'm going to orient my heart to remember God's faithfulness, to expect God's power, and to anticipate the hope of the renewal of all things. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for your work. We thank you that you are the one 
Christ who has died, Christ who has risen, Christ who will come again. And we ask now that as we worship, respond to you with singing, you would awaken something in our hearts. Awaken something in us. Where we're dry, where we're weary, where we're discouraged. Lift up our heads to behold you. To offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand together and worship. Oh, 